the end of a, uh, a major section in Romans. And it begins, verse 31, with these words, What then shall we say to these things? What are these things that we are responding to, that Paul is responding to? He could be referring just to the verse beforehand for he talks of those whom he foreknew, he predestined, those he predestined he called, those he called he justified and those whom he justified he also glorified which is really a summary of the entire work of God in a, a person's life. But I think he's speaking of more than that. The these things he refers to is really Romans chapters 1 to 8 everything that he has said uh, so far because in the, the following verses he addresses the key points of all that he's, all that he's dealt with in chapters 1 to 8. So we're going to look at a, a very quick summary of where we've been so far and there's an outline in your newsletter uh, which gives that summary, the book of Romans so far. There have been really two, two key sections that we've covered. I don't think Paul sat down and when he was writing his letter he said, OK, I'm going to cover this section. As he wrote and as the Spirit led him, things flowed from one to the other. But in many of Paul's epistles there's a general structure of looking at the theology, the, uh, the truth of what God has done in Jesus Christ and that flows naturally into the application. What does this mean for us as we put our faith in Christ. And we see that pattern also in Romans. So in the first uh, five or so chapters, uh, Paul is talking about uh, imputed righteousness. Uh, if I impute something to you, it means I, I credit it to you. The bank imputes something to you as they put money into your account. It's credited. It's, uh, the, this word justification when God looks at a sinner and declares them to be righteous. It's how a sinner is made right with God. We saw that God's wrath is on idolatrous humanity and no one has any excuse. No one will be able to say, God, I never knew you existed. No one will even be able to say, God, I, I never knew that I had this problem called sin and I never knew that I had a need to have this problem dealt with. All of humanity faces the judgement of God. He then goes on to talk about how the Jews can't take the moral high ground just because they are God's chosen people, chosen for a historical purpose for a time in history. They are just like everyone else. They are included in humanity's condemnation. All people, Jew and Gentile alike, are guilty of breaking his law. We saw in that that the heart of sin is ultimately unbelief, refusing to acknowledge God for who he is, to give thanks to him, to glorify for him, to glorify him as God. Everyone is guilty of this. And then we saw the, 
the announcement of the Gospel in chapter 3. Justification from God has come and it's not through the law. It's not through trying to uh, obey the law and earn our own righteousness but it's through the cross of Jesus. As he offered himself as a sacrifice of atonement, all of the legal demands of the law were fulfilled and met. And so anyone now can come to him by faith and know that cleansing, forgiveness and reconciliation with the Father. And we saw Abraham as the supreme example. Abraham, the father of the Jews and our father too, the supreme example of one who knew this righteousness, not by what he did, but this righteousness by faith. Abraham believed God and God credited it, imputed, credited it to him as righteousness. From there Paul moves on to the next section which speaks of imparted righteousness. So whereas imputed righteousness is where God credits it to our account, imparted righteousness is where the righteousness that God gives us in Christ begins to change us and transform us. It's a righteousness given to us that works its way out in our lives. Uh, Theologians say this is the work of sanctification, God transforming us to become his holy people. It's how a sinner is transformed by God's righteousness. We saw that the fruit of this justification that God gives us is peace with God. We now stand where our minds and our consciences are clear and there's no animosity anymore between us and God. We saw that we are no longer in Adam, doomed to uh, be treated as Adam was in his sin, but we are in Jesus, we are in Christ. And so however God the Father treats him is now how he treats us. We saw that our union with Jesus in his righteousness means real change, not just theoretical, not just in our heads, but real change because we are set free. We are set free from slavery, slavery to sin and brought into a place of obedience to God. Our actual, not just our head, but our heart is transformed and flowing out of our heart then flows actions of joyful obedience. We saw the law, the role of the law in all of this. We saw that the law brings us to salvation because it exposes our sin and points us to our need for mercy and therefore it points us to Christ where we receive that mercy. But even as a believer in Christ, as we struggle with sin, the law reminds me who I am. I still am a sinner saved by grace. I am nothing more than a sinner but I'm nothing less than justified. And so in chapter 8, Paul says the matter is settled. Do you see what God has done for us? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says you are not in the, in the flesh, you are instead in the spirit. No longer will your fleshly desires 
drive you and set your destiny, but the Spirit himself who dwells in you is the one who controls and motivates and leads you. We know God as Father and we can cry as the Spirit works in us. We can cry out, Abba, Father. Know that intimacy with the Father and flowing out of that intimacy with the Father we know uh, our uh, wonderful privilege and responsibility as uh, his ambassadors uh, restored to our place of dignity uh, as Adam was to rule over creation. We are saved in hope. We have a sure and certain hope that reaches even beyond the grave itself. And we know in that no matter what happens between now and then, every single thing that happens in our lives is God working for our good. And the ultimate good that he's working for is that we will stand before him in the image of his own son, pure and spotless. And we'll see this morning that we are therefore secured, secured in the love of God in Jesus Christ. In response to all of that, Paul says, what can we say to this? How do we respond? Do we just say, okay, well that's some nice information. There's some good, solid Christian doctrine. We'll put that in a book and stick it on our our shelf and um, know that we are right in the things that we believe? Or is our response uh, something more living um, than that? In response to all of this, Paul says, what shall we say? And his answer to that is in the second half of verse 31. I've got it there. Well then shall we say to to these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? What a wonderful motto to have for your life. Put that above your door as your front door. So every time you walk out of your house, if God is for me, who can be nothing I face in this day, in this month, in this year. Nothing can be against me if God is for me. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Those who are for Jesus uh, won't be against him. Um, and we know that uh, in our lives. Thanks, Brian. These verses in 31 to 39, we could picture these verses as setting up the scenario of a courtroom. Paul wants us to imagine ourselves as someone who has to go to the divine court and we're facing charges that if found guilty result in the death penalty. This uh, imagery of the courtroom appears a few times through the scriptures. We see it in the Old Testament where God calls, summons his people to the divine court and says, well, what charge do you have against me? Let's, let's talk this through. Let's see who's in the right and who's in the wrong here. Um, but I think Paul is, is drawing from this imagery of um, a, court, a courtroom. Uh, the way 
trials were run in those days is a little bit different to the way they're run today, but there are some similarities. But imagine you have to go to court to face charges and you know that you're guilty of those charges. What's the first thing that you would do in that scenario? You'd want to find representation, wouldn't you? I need to speak to a lawyer. If you watch enough crime TV shows and movies, as the accused is there in the interview room and they suddenly realise they can't, can't budge, they say, I'm not saying anything until I speak to a lawyer. The counsel for the defence, our lawyer, is meant to be our advocate who speaks in our defence, who speaks on our behalf and brings all of the evidence and all of the witnesses they can find to prove us to be innocent or maybe just to get us off with a lighter sentence. So who is the counsel for the defence in the divine courtroom? Well, we're told God is for us. He is the counsel for the defence. He is there for us to represent us. He will speak on our behalf. And see how he summons the greatest witness that we could ever want. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. The witness that he summons to testify to defend us is Jesus himself who laid down his life for us, who paid for our sin, the very sin for which we are being brought before the court. And he'll call on every resource available. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He puts, all, he puts his best witness forward and all things, all the evidence forward for the case for our acquittal, for our innocence. So we, we go into this divine courtroom with God himself seated at our side as the counsel for the defence and he says to us, don't worry, I've got this. What then happens? in a court trial, or at least in a first century court. Three key things which involve three key people. Firstly, the charges are declared and the case is brought by the prosecution for why this person is guilty of their charges. Secondly, we have the judge on his throne Having heard all the evidence for the defence and for the prosecution, the judge gives their verdict of guilty or not guilty and declares the sentence if found guilty. The third person sitting there just on the side in the courtroom is the executioner because if I'm found guilty of a crime punishable by death, The executioner then comes, takes me away, separates me from my family, from my friends, from everyone and takes me off to be executed, separated forever. So in verses 33 to 34, each of these people 
and what they bring is a dress. Verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Where's the counsel for the prosecution? The one who brings the accusation and the evidence and the witnesses to prove that the accused is guilty. Who is the accuser? Now we'd expect to look across the room, across the courtroom, and see the devil. The devil is called the accuser. In Revelation he's the accuser of the brethren who accuses them day and night before the throne of God. But who do we actually see there? It's God. He's pushed the devil out of the way and sat down in his place. And what does God do as he stands in that place as the only one who can actually bring any charge against anyone? It's God who justifies. The word justify here is meant in the sense of vindication. God speaks in our favour. He only says things that betray us in a good light, that show us to be just or righteous. Imagine that. The counsel for the prosecution who is supposed to bring charges against you instead speaks for you in your favour. All the accusation of the devil is done away with because all the sin and unrighteousness that he might use as weapons against us was taken away at the cross. So the accuser is silenced forever. So not only do we have God as the counsel for the defence, he's also the counsel for the prosecution. And because what he has done in sending Jesus Christ to die for us and to justify us, he refuses to bring any charge against us. If God justifies, no one can bring a charge against God's elect. Verse 34. Who is to condemn? It's the role of the judge to pronounce the verdict of guilt and to to declare the sentence. To condemn the guilty sinner. But who's seated in the role, the seat of the judge? God. The same God who's the counsel for the defence and the counsel for the prosecution. God who alone is the judge of all the earth. He is qualified to condemn or to set free. But he is for us. The judge is for us in this court case. And who's seated at his right hand, speaking to him on our behalf? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Christ died for us, was raised, and is now representing us before the Father. And what does he say as he's at the right hand of God his father, God the judge. He says, I died for that sinner. My blood paid their ransom. All their sin is gone. They've been washed clean and made holy and acceptable in your sight. They're qualified not just to be set free, 
but they're also qualified to actually come into your own family. Two verses from the hymn that we'll be closing with today. A wonderful hymn written by Wesley. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers, they strongly speak for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Don't let that ransomed sinner die. The Father hears him pray, his dear anointed one. He cannot turn away the presence of his Son. His Spirit answers to the blood and tells me, I am born of God. He's the counsel for the defence, he's the counsel for the prosecution and he's the judge. Paul is drawing his imagery here in these verses from a passage in Isaiah. Isaiah 50 For the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced, and therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. And who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. These are the words of a person who knows God to be their advocate and their protector, who doesn't need to fear any accusation because God is their vindication. But in this passage in Isaiah, who is actually speaking these words? If we zoom out a bit and look at the context of the words that come just before these, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens me, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Who does that remind you of? Jesus. Now in the immediate context, it's probably Isaiah speaking about himself. Isaiah who spoke the word of God to Israel and was persecuted as they persecuted all of the prophets. And Isaiah was told, you're going to go and you're going to speak to a stubborn and rebellious people who are going to reject the word of God and who are going to reject you. So that was to some degree Isaiah's own experience. But he's not only speaking about himself, he's foreshadowing Jesus who will one day come and these words, verse 6, will literally be fulfilled as he goes to the cross. So this whole passage in Isaiah is primarily about Christ, both his sufferings and his vindication that we see in the resurrection. So what's Paul doing here? 
by alluding to this passage in Isaiah as he speaks about our position before God. He's saying that what is true for Jesus is now true for us as we are in him. Jesus is saying to the Father as he sits at his right hand, Father, treat this ransomed sinner just as you treat me. Just as you have vindicated me, vindicate them. Just as you have glorified me, glorify them. Just as you have poured your love upon me, pour it on them. Just as you welcome me, welcome them. And the Father is pleased to grant his request. So, in this divine court, the trial is over. And the executioner, who was there to take us off to our execution, got nothing to do. They're out of the job. Because we are unequivocally declared to be not guilty. And more than that, the judge has declared that he's adopting us into his family to be joint heirs with his own beloved son. And so the final question is, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The executioner who was to take us off to behead us or crucify us is gone. Can anything or anyone undo God's declaration of our justification, of us being right with him? Our justification is as secure as Jesus' own righteousness. So can anything lessen or remove his love for us? The Father would no sooner remove his love from us than he would remove it from his own Son, Jesus. Well, what about tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? They're the kinds of things that people then and maybe even now would tend to point to as signs that God had abandoned them. Verse 36 where Paul lists these things is from Psalm 44, a psalm which, uh, similar to the psalm we began the service with, cries out to God from a place of abandonment. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoiled. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbours, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and the reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like the circumstances around me, the things that are happening to me, make me feel as if God has abandoned me? 
further on, he says, Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Can you see that in Jesus this prayer has been answered? God has sprung into action. He has risen up to our help. He's redeemed us all for the sake of his steadfast love. So why then do we think that anything could separate us from that love? Paul knows a bit about those things that he lists in verse 35. That's what he faced as he went out as an apostle and shared the gospel. After uh, three or four years after writing this letter, he finally arrived in Rome, but he arrived as a prisoner to face trial and possible execution. He knew about tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and the sword. But what does he say about all of that? In all these things, tribulation, distress, persecution, the sword, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The love of God in Jesus Christ gives us a security to not only endure hardship but even to rejoice in the midst of hardship. Our rejoicing isn't over the hardship but our rejoicing is over the one who loves us and who walks with us through that hardship. I was talking this week with a, um, a man, a Buddhist man, but who's exploring things. He's been coming along to our international student group for the last uh, year or so. And he said to me, you know, I've been thinking maybe Jesus is a Stoic. And he meant that in the philosophical sense. A, a Stoic, the Stoic philosophers, their view of life was that life is suffering, life is hard. It's unavoidable. And so your, your aim in life is, in, when times are good, is to prepare yourself, steal yourself, so that when suffering comes you'll be able to endure it and pass through it and, and survive the suffering. The thing is, with a stoic, though, there's no purpose in the suffering. It's just fate. It's just a an unfortunate fact of life. And so you've just got to grit your teeth and push through. He said Jesus was a Stoic because Jesus had three years and he prepared himself to face the suffering of the cross. And I said, yeah, I kind of see what you're saying, but it's kind of true, but it's not quite that because there's another dimension because as Jesus himself was faced 
facing his deepest suffering as he was uh, weeping and sweating tears of uh, sweating drops of blood in the garden as he faced the cross just before him. He said, Father, Abba, Father. Cry of deep intimacy. Abba, Father, if possible, take this cup, this cup of judgement and suffering from me, but not my will, but yours be done. See, Jesus wasn't just bracing himself and gritting his teeth to go through suffering. He went into that suffering knowing this is the Father's will. This is the Father's plan and I'm fulfilling it. And so the writer of the Hebrews can say, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. It wasn't the joy that somewhere would be way in the distant future. The joy set before him was actually found in the cross as he delighted to do his Father's will and he, he actually knew that joy, that security in the Father's love as he offered himself up as a sacrifice for our sin. Remember, what is true of Jesus is true of us. We don't just grit our teeth and go through our hardships. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So at this point we've come to the end of this section of the book of Romans. We saw chapters 1 to 4, chapters 1 to 5, focus on what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Chapters 5 to 8, focus on the implications of this for someone who has faith in Jesus. The second half of Romans, the next eight chapters, are the very practical outworking or application of all this. What, what does this look like as we live our lives? What does it look like as we are part of God's mission to bring blessing to every nation? We'll see that in chapters 9 to 11. And what does this look like as we live our day-to-day lives here in this world? And we'll see that in chapters 12 to 16. Let's pray. God our Father, to think that you are for us in every way, that you are the counsel for the defence, the counsel for prosecution, you are the judge, you are even the executioner who could separate us from yourself forever, but uh, you are for us because of your gift to us of Jesus, your Son. Because of your great love showered upon us, you sent your Son that whoever believes in him will not perish, will not be separated forever, but will have everlasting life. Jesus tells us that everlasting life is to know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Father, we pray that we might know you, that we might have a deep in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives the absolute assurance that we have been adopted into your family, that we are secure in our position as your sons and daughters and that nothing in heaven or earth or in anything can separate us from your love in Jesus Christ. 
And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing our final hymn, which I quoted during the message. Get it up here. Frozen. Here we are. It's oh, that's right. Thanks, John. We've forgot to take the offering during one of the other hymns, so the offering will also be collect, collected during this time. Uh, this is a a new tune to an old hymn. Um, hopefully, we'll be able to pick it up easily. Let's sing. With confidence I now draw nigh With confidence